Well, continuing on in Philippians chapter 3, it says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. In fact, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them all garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, good morning, y'all. Today we're continuing in our series where we've... uh, been just kind of walking, meandering through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And Philippi in the ancient days was in Asia Minor, which is uh, in modern times considered to be modern day Greece. And this letter found itself as one of the books of the New Testament, and it's called Philippians. And we've entitled this series Choose Joy because over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul is asking the people of the church to do just that, to choose joy. And whether it was intentional or not, this letter really lays out for all of us God's plan on how we can find joy in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through. And so today I want to look at the text that I read just a little earlier from Philippians chapter 3. And I want to go back and look at, starting at verse 1, where it says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. There it is again, the rejoice thing. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out. For those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. All right, so here's the downside of teaching through a book of the Bible, because 
we have to then address topics that maybe we'd like to skirt around or not really hit. Um, and this is one of those weeks where you just can't like avoid it because it's like right there. And so I can't even believe that I'm going to say this, but I'm going to open up by spending the first few minutes talking about circumcision. <laughs> and I have to say that in first service, all the men folk were squirming a little bit. Um, but <laughs> apparently, 2,000 years ago, when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, he never thought of it as being inappropriate or politically incorrect to write like an entire passage that focuses around it. So, hey, here we go. So, here's what you need to know about that. As the history of the world was evolving to the point that people were becoming less barbaric and more civilized. You know, it's really funny. I've never had your attention like I do right now. That's, that is quite funny, actually. Um, uh, circumcision was considered to be something that was done for health and cleanliness reasons. And in fact, it's a practice that's still performed for the exact same reasons here in the United States, at least today. And we read in the book of Genesis that it became part of Jewish culture almost right from the beginning, to the point that as it evolved it became almost like a status symbol for Jewish men that distinguished people from being Jewish or non-Jewish. All the rest of the world were not, but the Jewish people were the one people who were circumcised. And the Jewish tradition is that when a male child turns just eight days old, that child is circumcised by somebody called a moil. And Amoyle is typically a rabbi or somebody who specializes in performing circumcisions, which sounds like an incredibly fun job. And the ceremony of circumcision symbolizes this young male officially becoming part of the Jewish culture, which, by the way, is something that the Jewish community still does Today, it's like a big deal. It's a big event that Jewish uh, families still celebrate, and it's called a bris. Now, my wife, Shelby, actually hates for me to tell this story because, well, we actually crashed a bris one time. Some people crash weddings. We crashed a bris. And she claims not to have been an accomplice to the whole thing. She thought that we were invited, even though we're not even a little bit Jewish. But she was right there by my side as being the only non-Jewish people allowed in the house. Here's your sign. And the dad was a very close friend of mine, and I'd never been to one, and I wanted to see how it was done. So the morning of the bris, when he really was in a, couldn't be in a position to say no, I invited myself over, and I dragged my wife uh, with me. And, and I have to say, it was actually 
fascinating to watch because as this entire family is gathered together and they're partying and drinking and eating and having a great time, all the while this poor little eight-day-year-old boy is getting all trimmed up, so to speak. But the Moyle, who these days actually has a little bit of medical training and actually has the proper equipment nowadays, he comes over all dressed in the rabbinic garb, and he's doing his thing, you know, and as he's doing it all, he's chanting in Hebrew and quoting Old Testament scriptures and telling stories from the Old Old Testament, and it was really pretty cool, I have to say, to watch because it was like you're watching this 3,000-year-old tradition that's happening like right there in front of you. So all that being said, circumcision is a very important part in the Jewish culture, and it actually became somewhat of a status symbol for Jewish men. Now, I'm not sure how they actually prove their status, nor do I want to know. But let's just say they took great pride in their circumcised ways. Now, apparently, there were a group of people running around called the Judaizers. And they were Jewish people or Jewish converts who were trying to convert non-Jewish people to become part of the Jewish religion. And they were following the Apostle Paul around, almost in protest, and every time that he would preach somewhere, they'd go back in and say, hey, the way to salvation is not by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, like Paul is preaching. The way to salvation is by being a good Jew. And as a good Jew, you need to keep the law just as the Old Testament States And by the way, if you haven't been circumcised, which keep in mind they're over in in Greece, not over in the Israel area, so most people weren't at that time, they were preaching that in order to keep the law, even now the adult men must now be circumcised as a way to show that you are now part of the Jewish religion. And so for the Judaizers, circumcision became a litmus test for whether or not you were a true follower of God. Thus the idea of putting confidence in the flesh that Paul alludes to. And so when uh, Paul is calling the Judaizers mutilators of the flesh, now you know, without me having to go into any kind of graphic detail, exactly what he's talking about when he says this, right? Capiche? I think that's actually Italian and not Yiddish, but I'll find the Yiddish word for that. But, uh, and believe it or not, then, Paul just takes the whole circumcision to then a whole other level. And he uses it as a metaphor when he says, now we are the real circumcision. Now, he's using that symbolically as a way to talk about the fact that we've cut out all of the unnecessary parts of our lives. And now we are living with clean hearts before God. All right, so now that you have all this great information about circumcision, let's keep moving, shall we? All right, so for, starting again in verse 3, for it is we 
who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself, I have reasons for such confidence. If somebody else thinks they have reasonable confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. So all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul sets up this contrast between what the Judaizers are teaching and apparently trying to get the people of Philippi to turn to versus what it is like to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ and what that's looking like. And so the Apostle Paul says, hey, if anybody has bragging rights here, it's me. He's like, I was circumcised on the eighth day according to Jewish tradition. Out of all the 12 tribes of Israel, I was in the most elite. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that he's 100% pure blood, ancient Jew. He, you know, the top honor in the Jewish culture was to become a Pharisee. You had to go through a very intense uh, studying process, studying the law, and be a very strong intellectual. It was a very respected position. He says, hey, I was a Pharisee. And as for righteousness, I kept the law perfectly. As for zeal, I even persecuted the church at one time until I figured out that I was off. So, he says, if anybody has room to brag about their accomplishments, man, it's me. Now, in case you just can't connect into like what he's saying there about his accomplishments, let me put it in today's kind of terminology. So, it would be like if Paul was saying, hey, he grew up in a wealthy family like the Rockefellers, right? They had status, they were respected and known in the community, and then he went to Harvard Law School and got his JD, and then he became an attorney, and now he runs his own firm and makes a lot of money and is very well respected in his practice as an attorney. There's a lot to be proud of there, right? But then he goes on and he says this, but whatever was considered a gain to me in my life. I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what's more, I now consider everything a loss because of the superior worth of knowing Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider everything that I have achieved as garbage that I may gain Jesus and be found in him, not from trying to live a perfect life, but a life that comes through faith in him. So finally he gets now down to the point of it, right? Everything has been leading up to this one thing. Whatever great accomplishments I've had in my life, he says, I now count them as worthless compared to what I've gained in my life by making a decision to follow Jesus. Jesus himself put it like this. What good does it do for a man to profit from gaining everything in the world? And yet in the end, he loses his soul. What is it that motivates you What drives you? 
At the end of the day, what are you going to get out of this life? I'm a little jealous in that Paul is absolutely single-focused about his ambition. That there is just one thing that drives him. There's just one thing that he's passionate about, and that is to live all in for Jesus. What's your passion? The word passion basically means to be affected deeply by something. What moves you? In his book, Care of the Soul, Thomas More said, passion is the essential energy of the soul. It's what drives us. It's what fuels us. It is at the core of every ambition. When you are affected by something that radically impacts you, you begin to pursue that something with a passion. What are you passionate about? What are you pursuing in this life? What's the one thing that drives you more than anything else? Living for God with a sense of passion is the opposite of going through the motions of doing religion. It goes way beyond reading your Bible and being a good moral person. This is about pouring your whole being into following Jesus. And I think that we're all going to fill our lives with something, and the question is, what will you fill your life with? And will it be something that at the end of the day has any value at all? Paul says, I will give up all things for just one thing. Jesus. Jesus also illustrates this point when he tells a parable in the book of Matthew in which he says that following God is not like doing it out of a sense of obligation or a chore. It's more like this guy who was out working in a field, and it was somebody else's field, and he was out digging. And as he was digging, he hit something hard. You can hear it clink. Curious, he starts kind of pushing away the dirt, and he sees the outline of a box. He's curious to find out what's in there. He wildly digs, pulls the box out, opens it up, and to his surprise, it is filled with jewels and gold. He's like, it's more wealth than he could ever imagine. He knew that he had to have it. And he would give everything to be able to have that treasure. And so he quickly buried it again, and then he ran all the way home, and he said, honey... We're going to put our house in the market. And I want you to take everything that we have, and I want you to sell it in a garage sale. And we're going to buy that field that I've been working in. And she looks at him and says, Darling, that old field hasn't produced in years. Why do you want that old raggedy piece of land? And he said, you'll see soon enough. 
friends and family who heard that he was selling off everything to buy this little piece of dirt thought he'd gone crazy and made fun of them. It didn't matter because he had to have it. He was obsessed with it. And it's all he thought about. When he finally sold everything that he had, he ran straight to the owner and offered him a ridiculous amount of money for this field, and he bought it right on the spot. And the first thing he did was to go out and dig up that box. And when he opened that chest of great treasure full of jewels and gold, he was wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. And nobody thought him a fool again. When we finally get it and understand what it means to have an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, we pursue it like that man pursued that treasure. We're obsessed with it. We will give up everything just to have it. It drives us. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom. And all the other junk that you want in life, all that will come in time. But remember what's first. And where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And God says, bing, that's it. That's all I want from you. I want your heart. I want to be the object of your passion. Look, as you go through your life, do your job well. Take care of your family. Have some fun. Live your life to the fullest. But understand this one thing. It is all absolutely meaningless without God. Paul takes it to the next level in verse 10 when he says, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings and even become like him in his death. And remember, he's sitting in a cell awaiting trial that probably will end his life. And then he says, and so somehow attaining resurrection from the dead. And when he says that I want to know him. He's not talking about intellectually. It's way more holistic than that. It's wrapped up in this, I want to know him in my mind and in my heart and in my spirit. The point of this passage can be found in the question, where do you put your hope? We all put our hope into something, right? We put our hope into having a better career someday. We put our hope in making better money or becoming financially secure so that someday we can retire or building a bigger home. But the thing about it is that most of the stuff that we put our hope in has no lasting value. Paul says, I put my hope in the fact that Jesus Christ conquered death. And in the end, I want to be right there with him. 
if we knew for sure that when we die, we're going to come face to face with Jesus. And if we knew for sure that our time on this earth is almost over, how would you begin to live differently? What would change for you? Paul's saying all that stuff that we work so hard to achieve in the end will be counted as loss compared to just this one thing that you have given your life to Jesus. I don't hide about the fact that I'm a pretty proud person and I'm a pretty success-driven person. And so this concept is really hard for me. And many times I have to fight through in my own life to fight through all of the stuff that distracts me to figure out what's really important in my own life. And so I've consciously recently taken all of my achievements and my successes, all the stuff that I feel good that I've done in my life, and I ask myself this question. In the end, what's it matter? What lasting value does it have? Is it something that will make a difference after they bury me? And when you ask those questions, it really begins to change your perspective because most of the time, the stuff that I get so uptight about ain't going to amount to a hill of beans when I'm dead and gone. When we truly get that in the scheme of eternity, we are nothing more than just a blip on a screen. It's only then that we can finally get that to put our hope in the stuff of this world is like putting our hope in winning the lottery. It's just not going to happen. And when we come to the end of our lives, we will not regret not having made enough money. Only that we didn't give enough of it away. I promise you that we will not Regret not having lived in a bigger home. Only that we loved too little. We won't regret that we didn't work hard enough. Only that we didn't give enough of ourselves to other people. We won't regret that we weren't more successful in our careers. Only that we didn't use our gifts and our talents to contribute back. And to be honest with you, the thing that scares me most about my death is if I go to my grave with any regrets. What's holding you back from living the life that God wants you to live? You know what it is. You know who he wants you to be. You know what he wants from you. What stops you to fall short from becoming that person? What's standing in your way? 
I, I don't have any secrets for how you keep your passion for God. I don't have any formula or three points that's going to make it happen. Best I can figure, it's like this constant dumping out of all the junk of this world and whatever we can do to fill our lives up with Jesus, we do it. But what I do know is this, that at the end of the day, when I leave this world, all of the stuff that I worked so hard to achieve in my life will all melt away. And in that moment, there will be only one thing that really matters. How passionately did I live out my days in following Jesus? I love the uh, words to that song because it just feels like there's so much that we have to fight through to keep our faith. I mean, we go through divorce or job loss or the loss of somebody that we love who's died on us and, and through every crisis, through every downturn, through everything, it's like you gotta fight through it and there's this commitment that we make that says, I won't back down and no matter what happens, I'm gonna keep landing back, coming back to center with Jesus. And then when you finally get it right, like in those rare moments when you feel like you're like in the God zone, this little like hallelujah pops out. And I don't know of a better word to describe it, but I love that word, hallelujah. Because it's like, man, you're just like filled up and you know you're in that moment where you're exactly where God wants you to be. You're exactly who God wants you to become. And it's an amazing, amazing feeling and experience. I also think that as Jesus looked forward to the cross, that there was a commitment that he made that he wouldn't back down because I don't think he wanted to go to the cross to have the nails driven in his hands and feet to hang on the cross, to be beaten, to die there. But he's like, I won't back down because I love these people and I want them to be great. I want them to have a second chance. I want them to be able to come and stand before God at the end of the day, perfect, because all their sin is forgiven. And so every week here at Westridge, we celebrate communion because we really believe that what Jesus did on the cross was so amazing and so critical to our faith. And so in just a moment, there'll be a tray of bread that will be passed. If you take a piece of bread and eat it, take it in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, there'll be a tray of cups of juice that'll be passed. If you take a cup of juice and drink it, put the empty cup back in the tray, pass it down to the next person. But as you do, take it in remembrance of the blood that was spilled there on that cross. But let me just tell you this. The Bible says that we don't take this moment lightly. And this is a real opportunity where you can come before God right now and no matter what it is that you've been struggling with, no matter what it is you've been through, you can lay it at the foot of the cross and just ask for his forgiveness and just clear that out in this moment. Don't waste this moment. Let's pray.
Father, we are just so grateful for the gift of your son. And we get so lost. We lose our perspective. It's so hard sometimes. So Father, I just pray that you give us the strength that we need to make it to the end and to cross the finish line of this life with our faith in you still intact. And it's in Jesus that we believe and gives us hope.